and welcome to Mission Control. I'm Liana Downey and I'm here with Mark Diaz, the Managing Director of NatureVest, the Nature Conservancy's Impact Investing Division. Welcome, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here, Liana. So, Mark, could you tell us a little bit about your journey to this point, to this role? Sure. So, I've worked at the intersection of mission and money for the last 20 years, and my principal concern, whether it was the private sector, the not-for-profit sector, or the public sector, was to find ways for organizations to deploy the financial capital they had and to attract financial capital from others to achieve their mission, whether, again, that mission was measurable in schools and success measures of, of education or one that was applicable to international development. In my current role at the Nature Conservancy, our chief focus as a mission-driven organization is to preserve the lands and waters on which all life depends. And our chief focus at NatureVest is to bring private capital to bear to do so. So it's really thinking about how do we knit together private investment to advance that quite expansive mission. As you said, this is an area that you've been working in before. Before this role, you were working at UNICEF, is that right? That's right. And tell us a little bit about the work that you were doing there. Sure. So UNICEF is United Nations Children's Fund, and it's focused on protecting and helping to ensure children all around the world thrive. The challenge that UNICEF confronted was that it had these emergencies or these urgent needs to deliver life-saving goods to children in need, whether in a drought or a natural disaster or as part of an immunization drive. And yet it had a very complex purchasing process. Mm. It had to depend on a, an intricate chain of many distributed donors around the world, mobilizing resources in a timely way, and then procuring the goods they needed to travel to some of the hardest-to-reach places in the world. And so as a consequence, it was very costly work, and it was work that was often neither as efficient or as effective as UNICEF sought to be. We thought that finance might have a role to play in improving both the delivery but also the outcomes. And so we organized the UNICEF Bridge Fund, a simple financing facility that took commitments from strong, proven donors of, uh, supportive of UNICEF's mission and helped to organize those donor commitments in a way that improved the quality of purchasing but also of logistics and delivery. So if you were Rotary International or the Gates Foundation or Procter & Gamble and you had supported UNICEF's work for years in a particular way, UNICEF was able to save time, save money, and pull those goods through and really shift the way it tackled its most critical issues. It was exciting because one major example of the way this changed outcomes uh, was eliminating polio in Nigeria. Despite all of the sectarian wow. conflict, despite all of the kind of cultural differences and topography and, and just environmental challenges, the country organized a kind of border-to-border -border immunization drive and was finally able to stamp out polio, leaving it with all countries in the world but two that have eliminated this scourge after decades of trying to do so, in large part because it could pre-purchase in an affordable way, supply, and then deploy systematically that polio immunization to, to really stamp out the last of those cases that were still occurring. And so the issue in the past had been that people didn't have all the vaccines on hand to go in one fell swoop? Is that the issue? It was always the challenge of you could never raise for a country the size of Nigeria. I mean, immense population of Africa's largest, highly urban in some contexts, rural in others. In some communities, UNICEF partnered with local religious leaders and others with business, right? So this really complex configuration of variables, you could never mobilize the financial resources all at once, 
in advance and then deliver them in a systematic way. And so different pockets of outbreaks would flare in different places at different points. And it was really only through the ability to do the planning on the front end and then to deliver the resource at scale, pulling forward those donor commitments in time and doing that pre-purchasing and that logistics and, and delivery planning that enabled this to happen. Fascinating. And I think we tend to think of financing, supply, logistics as the, the unsexy side. Maybe not what everybody's focused on, but as you've described, absolutely life-changing. No, it, it can be. And, and we find that you know, finance is, is really the facilitator, right? It's that, that component of the work that you know, drives us to, to ask, how are we doing our work? What are the outcomes we're really seeking? Because financial investors often prompt us because of their own requirements around cash flows, mm-hmm. return expectations, tenor of capital available, to reflect back on our mission-driven and say, huh, there's a whole bunch of money that's only available in a particular form. Is there a way we can organize our activity to enable us to deploy that resource, but to respond to what the market can offer, whether, again, it's the duration or the efficiency that is the capital that needs to be returned you know, as, as a part of what the investor is offering? And it's a helpful way, I find, in mission-driven organizations to frame important questions because we sometimes can get distracted by the, the sheer abundance of issues we're trying to address, and it, it helps us to pare back to really those most critical things at the heart of our mission around capacity, delivery, and outcome. Absolutely, and you may know that I'm passionate about this question of focus and taking control of your mission, and I think it's a really interesting point that you've made that sometimes it's the conversation with funders that forces that self-reflection about what is it that we're focusing on, what is it that we should be focusing on, but the interesting thing is that that always leads to better outcomes, and you've described a really fascinating example of that journey. And so taking some of those experiences and learnings and now translating it into quite a different, in some ways, context, again, a global context. Can you tell us a bit more about the work that you're doing with NatureVest and some of the projects that you're working on at the moment? Sure. So you know, NatureVest is advancing a thesis that we can invest in natural capital. That is, the, the, the natural resources, the capacity of nature all around us to not only sustain itself, but to sustain our livelihoods and to do so in a way that's compatible with human development and, you know, frankly, that's, that's compatible with maintaining biodiversity and other aspects of environmental sustainability. The way that we're tackling this is much the way a bank would tackle the problem, setting up business windows, places where if you need a car loan or a home loan, there's an application, there's a product, there's a pathway that's very clear. You can go to that bank teller and ask for one of those and expect to receive a response back and an evaluation that's consistent, kind of project to project in our instance. But that analogy is, has led us to five business lines of focus that line up with the five strategic pillars of our work. So we work across the lands, waters, oceans, the issue of climate, and cities. Those are the five domains of our expertise, and we've developed a product that we think is responsive to a very attractive environmental investment opportunity in each one of those. So those five business lines exist for us to be able to go out to the world to our um, conservation practitioner colleagues and say, hey, we can attract new resources to support your work if you can organize it in this way to investors who have capital to deploy, who have particular requirements or constraints, and who are looking to achieve not only financial returns, but also some measurable 
intentional conservation outcomes, outcomes that may be measured in uh, populations of fish in the sea or in carbon sequestered in trees. And with those business lines, we believe we're going to be able to replicate a series of transactions and over time build up a whole portfolio of different types of investments, much like the broader capital markets. <laughs> we're early days in that journey, but those five business lines for us represent a way that we can hang a shingle, make our own work known, and, and begin to describe to other people what's the fact pattern, what is the, the set of activities, the domain, and the resources available to support those for our broader mission, which again is an environmental conservation mission. So for the listeners who hear capital markets, hear banks, and break out in hives, talk us through a really practical example of what this looks like. You talked about fish in the sea, but something that, that somebody can get their head around. But... Sure. So let's go to uh, cities. Uh, in the United States, in Washington, D.C., we've uh, created an investment vehicle for our urban stormwater business line. And the challenge is that cities are being inundated with water, and as they're built more and more, that water collects pollutants and all sorts of contaminants and, and flows back into freshwater bodies. In Washington, D.C., the Anacostia River, which is part of the Chesapeake Bay watershed, when it does so, it pollutes the water, water which many communities we drink. It damages the habitat for the animals and plants that live there, and it uh, erodes the economic base that's linked to these natural resources. The Chesapeake is the most productive estuary in America for oystermen, for fishers, for tourism. Mm -hmm. So there are real consequences for this urban stormwater, which is the fastest growing source of pollution to freshwater bodies worldwide. Washington, D.C. came up with an innovative cap-and-trade mechanism. They said, we're going to introduce a public policy to reward those folks who, in their development activity, can most effectively capture the stormwater. And NatureVest has set out a simple thesis, which is we can be developers for stormwater projects using nature's own capacity. What does that mean? Basically, when we identify a real estate developer who has a big condominium they want to put up, and that's going to displace a certain amount of urban stormwater, they can either try to collect it on their own building, but that gives up valuable rooftop space or potentially uh, parking spaces in the basement. We can, within the confines of the public policy rules, find a site in a lower-cost neighborhood, oftentimes a poor neighborhood that doesn't have a lot of nature in place, and convert an abandoned old parking lot um, held by a landowner for future development into nature in place today that can gather all of that stormwater, keep it out of our freshwater bodies, clean it, and sustain a small aspect of nature in an urban context. We do that at a lower cost for the developer, who rewards us financially. We do that in compliance with the policy. And then we create all of these co-benefits. We bring nature to communities that don't have enough of it. We bring that aspect of habitat, whether it's for migratory birds or simply um, for cooling the urban heat islands that pop up when we have all of this asphalt. But we introduce this rich set of co-benefits that a set of investors who care about strengthening and sustaining nature in cities and sustaining human life in cities uh, are attracted to. So a financial return that comes from the money we save the developer, an environmental return through nature doing what it always does, which is to perform those functions that, that we depend upon, and doing it in a market set of rules or framework that organizes our activity. And we have over 700 cities in the U.S. that are out of compliance with the Clean Water Act that are hungry for innovative solutions like this that you know, finance can, can facilitate. So, I mean, that's a fascinating example. And I've seen 
in other contexts examples, but they seem to be reliant on the government understanding that there are financial values, as you said, further down the track to conserving the things that sustain us. To what extent do you find that you need to think about policy work and encourage governments to think about creating mechanisms that can allow for this kind of innovation and win-win outcomes? When we look at investable social or environmental issues, we tend to find there are three components that you need in place if you're going to be able to bring investment capital to work at scale. The first is there needs to be a clear cash flow story. So what's the money in and what's the money out? Right. Um, There's much good work in our world that should simply be at the provision of charity or of public resources through tax collection and public spending. And there's no investment return that will ever be associated with that. And that's a moral obligation or, or a social compact. But there are a set of things that can generate financial value. And to be able to map those spending requirements in and the financial value that gets created out is a vital prerequisite. The second thing we then look for is a stable set of rules. And we think about policy in the simplest way, that it's simply rules for governing behavior. And it's rules that investors can rely upon, so they're not likely to change, they're likely to be enforced, and they're likely to be consistent with other rules, so you don't create perverse incentives. The third thing, if you get the cash flows and the rules right, is what we call delivery capacity. And this is often the hardest, the most elusive thing. Are there the last mile arms and legs, the know-how, the capacity at the scale at which a problem needs to be solved? to take that money, to spend it in alignment with the cash flows, to follow those rules, and to deliver those environmental, social benefits that we want, as well as those financial returns. And that's why this work is so complex. Um, We do spend time with public policy leaders at the local level, municipal levels, even at the national and extranational level. And those rule sets are vital, but they're only the first part. If we can't organize those activities into a cash flow story that generates value that can attract investors and then find folks who can meet those commitments, those budgets and those, those activities at the scale they need to be met, um, then you know, we, we still can slip away without an investment. But when we can do all three of those things, you know, for us, that's, that's really the sweet spot and why we're trying to create more definition around those and then begin to repeat those uh, akin to a product or a business line. I know that one of the topics that you're quite passionate about is water. And you've been recently doing some work in Australia. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? And then what are the implications for people outside of Australia of that work? Sure. So in Australia, we've effectively been investing in the world's oldest and best performing water market to help strengthen outcomes for agricultural communities, for people and for nature. And the way in which we've done that is to purchase a set of permanent water rights in the Murray-Darling Basin in Australia, one can own water in addition to land because Australia has had to grapple with very arid conditions and a need to ration that water in as responsible way as possible. And they felt like a market mechanism that they introduced over 20 years ago now was the best response. Um, So we own water along with agricultural users and traders and communities. And those water rights are akin to owning a bucket. And we're allocated across the whole basin every year, water based on the natural conditions. In wet years, our bucket is full. In dry years, our bucket is is quite, quite a bit lower. What is our core activity? Well, 
we try to trade the bulk of our water, and particularly in dry years, we trade most of it to agricultural users to ensure water security, food security, economic security. But in wet years, and in Australia, the pattern in this region is every three or four years, you get quite a wet year. There's really no place for the surplus water to go. Historically, it even ran out to the sea because agricultural users have quite stable water needs year in and year out. We, however, in these wet years, restore wetlands, particularly wetlands on private Aboriginal community lands. And by doing so, we return a natural cycle of floodplains and a boom-bust ecology that allowed plants and animal species to thrive from millennia. And these natural cycles getting restored also enables human communities to thrive. We work with Aboriginal young people to return this water, quite literally just pumping it over levees back into the lands. And you see in a matter of weeks an immense amount of biological activity return. We measure it for our investors in a quite clever way, with sound. In fact, if you think about the clearest marker of nature, when there's no nature, there's little to no sound. But in a matter of a few weeks, we have a cacophony of bird sounds and insects, of frogs, um, and of creatures in movement returning as these plants and these, uh, these animals really rebound rapidly. And the lessons for us in other places are that markets can value water. They can ensure that people are rewarded for conserving it, and they can ensure that it gets distributed to the broad range of uses we need. We're doing this work in Chile, in Mexico, and in the American West, particularly in the Colorado River Basin. Because in all of these communities, there's a tension between the needs of people, agriculture, species, for water that needs to move through a place and water that needs to be used in a place. And we care about this not only for the volume of water, the flow, but also for the quality of that water. Because when water is returned with contaminants or in a way that's irregular or filled with sediment, it can impact everyone from a hydropower plant downriver to a shrimp community that relies upon a certain salinity to ensure that it can breed so it can provide a tasty, culturally relevant food (laughs) to a whole population that's depended upon it for generations. And so markets provide us with a simple way to ensure that water's valued and that we can participate in a responsible way on behalf of nature. You know, I think that is, it's such an uplifting story, and I've not had the experience of seeing the, the impact of the restoration of the wetlands, but I have had the good experience of seeing some land restoration work that the Nature Conservancy has been behind and seeing the before and after. So going to some parts of southwest Australia where the land had been completely decimated by very poorly placed farms and people who didn't know how to farm and a government who didn't kind of understand which were arable lands and which were not. And in those areas, it's, it's just like a desert, sand. And then seeing land restoration efforts in the first year, the second year, and the third year. And it is probably one of the most uplifting things I've had the, the good fortune to see, to see that as humans we have the ability to restore, not just to destroy. And as you said, the sound, the, the visual aspect of that kind of reconnecting and recreating and, and enriching, it's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing that the Nature Conservancy is doing. And, and through so many fascinating mechanisms, I think that you are, as you said, you're not just thinking about things that can serve your work, but these mechanisms have the applicability much more broadly in the social sector. What are some of the things that you might suggest to somebody who's working in 
human services sector who's working with prisoners about recidivism. What are some of the things that you would suggest to them that they might start to think about uh, around some of these mechanisms and thinking creatively about the way finance can change how work is done? One key aspect of finance that we really focus on in our work is that finance is particularly effective at repeating and scaling work. Mm. Um, so, you know, candidly, there's different types of money for different types of problems. Um, if you think about the analogies in a private context, there are angel investors who put money to work in completely unproven, untested ways, um, and most of them lose most of that money. Um, that's the garage startup that most of us never hear about that doesn't get bought uh, right. by a billion-dollar company. <laughs> there are venture capitalists who then take those garage startups that manage to build something or get their idea off the ground and provide the strategic counsel and accelerate that work. Then there are growth capital providers who take proven models that are producing activity and help them get to that next scale of growth, a new set of markets, a new set of products um, that help them move from a very kind of gradual, linear way of, of achieving their, their value to, to one that greatly expands. And it's this aspect of kind of growing the practices that so many mission-driven organizations have been able to demonstrate successfully at a particular project site in a pilot effort, or even in a distributed network, but where they see the potential to do it for so many more people. Right. In such a bigger way for more sustained human impact, for more, uh, frankly, efficient and effective outcomes. And so if you think about problems like hunger or health or even educational issues, uh, the ability to organize our work in such a way that we can find a scale at which there's more efficient capital allocation for a longer period of time that enables us to achieve a set of results more effectively than we can today. That's a fact pattern that people in the social space may wish to look for, which isn't always to say that bigger is better. Yeah. But there may be aspects of your work that benefit from scale and that benefit from repetition. For example, I'm, I'm imagining there are food services or hunger services in most communities in the world. There are certain aspects of that work that benefit from scale, perhaps a warehouse operation, perhaps um, engagement with donors or providers of food products, foodstuffs. In that instance, how you might invest in large-scale models to avoid food waste, looking at even climate control and energy use and minimizing costs in your, in your food distribution facilities is a place that could attract private capital because there's real value that gets created financially there. There are other aspects that may never quite lend themselves to attracting that type of investment. Each community has perhaps quite particular needs that are best borne out by the local knowledge and, and different approaches, and those may continue to require philanthropic or public financing to be sustained. But even as an aspect of your model that can benefit from private capital, take some of the pressure off as a mission-driven organization, particularly a non-governmental organization that struggles with how do I fundraise for everything. The private capital markets are good at, at some of those things, and, and that's a place where you can begin to look at investment models that may enable you to focus at the heart of the fundraising mission. Absolutely. So that's a great recommendation. Think carefully about your series of programs and identify if maybe there's one or two that could really benefit from a different way of thinking about financing mechanisms. It has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you so much for your time, Mark, and congratulations on all the amazing things that you and NatureVest and the Nature Conservancy are achieving.
Well, thank you for having me, and I hope that the Mission Control uh, listeners enjoy this podcast and many others in your series. It's terrific to be learning from doers in the field and, and people approaching the problems we all confront uh, in new and, and exciting ways. Thank you. You've been listening to Mission Control Podcast with Liana Downey, where we talk about how social sector leaders can take control, increase impact, and change the world. For more in the series, you can follow us at SoundCloud, on iTunes, or see our website at www.missioncontrolbook.com.